Thank you, Roger and Letitia, for those beautiful reflections and prayer. Um, Bruce and the boys, for your welcome. Thank you. Thank you to Pastor Paul, Joe and Caitlin for the invitation to be here. It's lovely to be here and to be blessed by the worship already. As I, when I accepted the invitation to come and speak here at Springwood, I always enjoy the fact that it's so close to home, and I know I probably say that every time I come here, but it's nice to roll out of bed and you're here for a change, but sometimes we travel a fair way. Uh, so it's nice to be here, but when I signed up for this weekend, I didn't realise at that time that it was actually the Anzac Day weekend. Um, and so I had to rejig my thinking. I thought, well, isn't it It's a privilege to share a, a message that connects our Anzac traditions uh, with the gospel of Jesus. And so I've called my, my talk Anzacs, Bystanders and Passersby. And you have to figure out who you are. You know, when the call went out that the war had started and the AIF, or the Australian Imperial Forces, called men and women to serve, Australians were very quick to jump up and say, yes, I will go. And they lined up by their thousands, they were given their, their uniforms, their, their weapons and so on, uh, a very brief training perhaps, of course most of them from an agricultural background knew how to handle a, a gun probably, but they went. And God calls us to mission, are we as quick to respond and to say, I will go? The discussion at the time in the uh, uh, those early 1900s was about whether or not we actually needed to conscript people into the military. Uh, and there was a big debate, and they, this is Billy Hughes, um, I think in Melbourne, sharing his views. He was our Prime Minister at the time, and he was pro-conscription. He said we need to make people sign up because we need all the men and women we can get. And so there were big rallies about it. And in 1916, there was a referendum. And the Australian people voted no by a very small margin. It was 49% that had said yes, 51% said no to, to conscription. Uh, interestingly, it came back, that was in October of 1916, it came back on the agenda and was voted again in December of 1917. And by this time, some of the novelty of the war had... Well, novelty, I don't know if that's the right word, but the excitement about going to serve. By this time, some of the stories had come back about the fate of people and, and families were in mourning. And the... the, the enlistment had slowed down to some degree. But they debated, like here in, in uh, Martin Place in Sydney, whether or not conscription should be brought in. Would it be enough for people to say, I will go, or would it be necessary for the government to say, you will go? So the second referendum, December 1917, 
and it was a worse result for Billy Hughes. 46% said, um, yes, we should bring in conscription. 54% said no. And so they developed posters to promote the whole idea that you ought to sign up and get yourself over there and join the military and fight this war. There was this poster is the one that uh, it's probably the most common one, at least the one I've seen the most. Um, and and here you have this guy calling out cooey. Of course, it's a very Aussie thing. Um, he'd have to have a pretty big cooey. But anyway, there you go. Won't you come? Now. Then you had this, these couple here, which are quite intriguing to me. Uh, which picture would your father like to show his friends? <laughs> uh, and there's Lauren sitting there with his, <laughs> with his golf clubs. <laughs> um, no, it's, anyway. Yeah, and, and of course, this is the noble son. This is the thing your father needed to brag about. Uh, and then, of course, the other one's quite funny, I think. I don't think they meant it to be funny, but it looks funny now. It's nice in the surf, and here's this poor bloke having a great old body surf. But what about the men in the trenches? <laughs> you bludger. Get over there and help. But they did. They signed up. And by the end of uh, the First World War, 400,000 Australians had gone into battle. 62,000 had lost their lives, another 156,000 were in some way either injured or imprisoned. And what's really interesting to me as a Christian pastor is to look and consider just how influential the Bible was in informing the decisions of the Anzacs. And it was central to a lot of the debate about conscription. Uh, it was a time when 96% of Australians identified themselves as Christians in the census. Now, I don't know what it is now. Russ was it's not nowhere near 96%. I think we're you know, below 50 now who identify as Christians. And they talked about things like a just war. It was first described uh, by St. Augustine of Hippo about AD 354 and then developed further by Thomas Aquinas. I know they're not very good Adventist names, but they, it's Christian history. About a just war. On what basis? What are the ethics around this? On what basis would someone go to war? And Aquinas developed this concept that the just war uh, involved essentially three things. It, was, it had to be um, instigated by a sovereign power. So it was the government that had to, to take... You, you couldn't just personally take up the sword, but it had to be the government that, that instigated it. Um, it had to be for a just cause and soldiers had to have the right intent. Now, there's been a bit on the news about that lately with war crimes and certain Australian um, soldiers and so on. The violence had to be proportionate to the need. 
And one way or another, most Australians wrestled with the question. There was an Anglican priest who signed up and he went, he, he was on that, uh, that boat that pulled up there in the shores of Gallipoli. He led the charge into battle. He was shot and killed on the battlefield, an Anglican priest. And one of his colleagues wrote this. He said, we didn't all agree with the vicar taking up arms. But what we did know, that when you sat with him personally in his tent, whether you thought he was right or wrong, he had made up his mind before God with his Bible open. It informed everything in our society. And when, when they, they went, this, this uh, young digger said, it's hard to explain what is compelling me to go, but there is something allied to conscience that bids me go. I believe in the hereafter, and if following the will of my conscience, I enter it sooner than I, under ordinary circumstances, I do not think anyone should regret it. What comes to me a great deal is that I am abiding here in comfort, playing his golf, his tennis, his surfing, and others are fighting my battles and giving their lives for me. Death must come to us all sooner or later, and there is no way so noble of leaving than that in which you lay down your life for your friends. This became a very much of a, a favourite Bible verse, and still around the country this weekend, you will hear that verse used, well, thousands, I might, might be exaggerating, hundreds of times. This young man joined the Flying Corpse, was shot down in 1918 and met the death that he had so boldly said he was willing to face. As the soldiers embarked, a common piece and probably perhaps the only piece of literature that many of them carried was the Bible. And the, the British and Foreign Bible Society, or the Bible Society as we know it now, printed heaps of uh, copies of the New Testament and so on, and they took it into battle. Alan Broadrib says, My parents were on the wharf waving. Mum was crying. Dad had been in Melbourne and got me a little Bible from the Bible Society. Dad always held his feelings in, but it was the last thing he gave me as we shook hands. And as uh, was true of what Letitia read for us, it provided immense comfort to those in the trenches. A report from the Western Front said it wasn't uncommon to see a man in the trenches reading his New Testament. A chaplain at Gallipoli in two days gave out 1,300 copies of the Bible and he said the men circled like wolves to get their hands on it. And it comforted them in the trenches and in the battles. For comfort's sake, says one digger, 
I read dear Ma's favourite chapter, John 14. It took me out of myself for a while. During these ter terrible bombardments, one can always find comfort in prayer. But the nerve strain is awful. Later, when he was under intense fire and in the heat of battle, reflecting on it, he said, I was a bit afraid. But suddenly it came to me, why should you be afraid when you honestly believe that God is taking care of you? I felt ashamed and offered up a little prayer and instantly I lost all fear, though I was shaking a bit. <laughs> bit of honesty there. This is Alf Stewart. And by the way, uh, I attribute this part about the Anzacs to the Bible in Australia. It's a great book written by uh, a historian, Meredith Lake, who you may hear she has a broadcast on the ABC called Soul Search. And it's a great read if you, if you want the time, if you take the time. But Alf, who took comfort from his mother's favourite chapter ran into no man's land to rescue somebody one day and was shot and killed. But what intrigues me a lot, as each Anzac Day comes around, is this clash that we have in Australia today between the values that the diggers and the Anzacs held dear and the values that the society now wants to push forward. They don't want the Bible in anything. They don't want Christian faith and principles in anything. At least that's what they think. They want to silence the voice of Christian faith. And yet we, once a year then we come and we uphold the values of Anzac Day and the diggers and we kind of pretend that they were some sort of benign religious people. They weren't. By and large, their Christian faith and tradition had shaped who they were. And they would be willing to fight for the principles that this country stood for. You know, there was a recent survey, and I, I tried to find the, the, the figures uh, on this, but... Um, a recent survey of Australians, and it was quite substantial in terms of the numbers, asked whether if we were in a situation like Ukraine, would we stop and fight or would we flee? Guess what the results were? Because the Ukrainians, you know, they're fleeing by the millions, but there are, is a, a very uh, belligerent and very committed and dedicated force that is staying back to fight. Well, in this survey, it tells us that 53% of Australians said they would flee. And you wonder whether a push came to shove, whether that would be actually what happens. But the point is, um, is that we have, what's the right word, denigrated the foundations of our society to the point that we're always belittling who we are, our Christian heritage, our, our faith, to the point where, we, what are we going to fight for? Fight for what? What makes us better than anyone else? And you know, those diggers fought for freedom. We talk about freedom. What does that actually mean? Well, it means a number of things. A free, free to be sovereign. 
here in Australia. But you talk about democracy as well and the right for an individual to have equality and to have an equal vote. They were fighting for this. But what most people don't understand is that a lot of that mentality comes from a very Christian perspective. You know, you, you take this, this uh, Declaration of Independence. This is US now, not Australia. Thomas Jefferson, mag mag magnificent kind of piece of writing. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Well, it's a brilliant statement, but it simply isn't true. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Are you kidding me? All men are created equal. How is that self-evident? I mean, have a look around you, Mr Jefferson. Some people are rich, some people are poor. Some people are tall, some people are short. Some people are strong, some people are weak. Some people have a high IQ, some have lesser so. Some have a high EQ and some don't. And the two don't always match. Some, in, some are, are born into loving homes and some are not. All men are created equal. We consider this to be self-evident. That is baloney. It's not evident. The only reason that he would then say that, and he goes on, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. It's not self-evident. It's because men and women are created in the image of God and we have equality in his eyes. He died for every one of us. He came to save us. He loves each one of us. He created us each uniquely. But it's not self-evident. You go to a, a Hindu-based country where their caste system and the, the idea of karma, the whole business of inequality is spiritualised. It's the way it is. You take on the, uh, an evolutionary perspective. The strong survive and the weak don't. There is no self-evident equality. But our diggers fought for it because they knew that we are each created equal in the image of God. One of the interesting things um, that, as I looked at this whole war thing, is that some of the places that they fought, they fought in the Holy Lands. And given this Christian background, it, it didn't pass them by that the places that they were fighting for had spiritual significance in terms of their history. Now, this is a photo of uh, General Allenby, Edmund Allenby, who in 1917 recaptured, well, say recaptured, 
in the battle there against the, Ottoman, the Ottomans or the Turks, he captured Jerusalem. And he entered Jerusalem, and some of the media reports get this, said as he entered Jerusalem, young women and old women were laying palm branches down on the streets. Now, everybody knew what the imagery was as it related to Christ's entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. But Allenby and the troops knew where it was that they were fighting and the significance of what they were fighting for. And some of the reports said Jerusalem, for the first time in 700 years, is back in Christian hands. And of course, um, you know, we know that Jerusalem is the centre of three world faiths, really. You've got the Jews, Christians and the Muslims all consider it uh, spiritually significant. But one of the things, one of the battles that they fought for about six weeks to capture Jerusalem was fought on the road to Jericho. Now, if you're biblically literate, you straight away start to think, what happened on the road to Jericho? And the soldiers fighting, it wouldn't have passed them by that as they fought this battle on the, the, the Jericho road, Jesus' most famous parable came to mind. And one has to wonder if the message of the parable had been taken to heart uh, for, for all that it was speaking about, whether the battle would have continued at all. Uh, and there, there we have Jesus telling this story about a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho who was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, they went away leaving him half dead and a priest, bless his heart, happened to be going down the road and when he saw the man he passed on the other side and so too a Levite when he came to the place saw him and he passed by on the other side. Well, you know the story, probably, if you've been around the Bible at all, and you know what happens next, don't you? That's not what you would expect is about to happen, because the priest, he's the key man at the temple, and a lot of the priests lived in Jericho. They used to go up for their duty in Jerusalem, and they'd travel back home to Jericho, and he's on his way down the road, uh, wealthy, no doubt, not walking as in the photo, most likely riding either a donkey or something himself. And his assistant is the next one to come past, a Levite. And if the story took the natural flow of things, the next person would be a lay Jewish person. But it's not. It's a Samaritan. Ugh. Are you kidding me? These are the dogs. That's the way they were, they were referred to. The Jews hated the Samaritans, couldn't stand a bar of them. And yet he travels down the road, comes to where the man was, and he takes pity on him, bandages his wounds, pours on oil and wine, puts the man on his donkey, brings him to the inn and takes care of him. And the next day he goes to the innkeeper with two denarii to pay and says, look after him when I return or I'll reimburse you for an extra expense that you may have. It's a staggering story. That's such a famous thing, we just read it. Ah, oh, it's all fantastic, great story. 
But I kind of tried to think about, well, how would we modernise this in terms to get that, that sense of um, maybe hatred, political incorrectness about what's going on here. So there's an Adventist church elder who's on his way to Jericho and he gets beaten by robbers and he's laying half dead at the side of the road. And along comes the conference president. Well, you, you know, you've got to personalise these stories, right? You know, you, I'm saying along comes the conference president. And he passes by on the other side. Now, just to be clear, I wouldn't do that. Um, well, I suppose it would depend which church the elder was from. <laughs> you know, like, you know uh, who's your head elder here? Lauren. Oh, Lauren. John. Oh, okay. Lauren, stop bugging it on. Get up. And I'll oh, leave him there. He's, he's good. Passes by, and the next comes along the conference general secretary. Well, that's the sort of thing that's going on in the story. Now, there's a, I've only worked with two conference general secretaries. One of them's here today. And I think he would have passed them by. No. <laughs> well, it depends who it was, Rob. But there's people in our lives that if we saw them in that situation, we'd be like, you deserve that, you sucker. And, and off we would go and leave them to it. Well, that was the situation. But what's interesting in the story that Jesus would have, you would have thought that the hero would be a Jew. Now, if it was a Samaritan by the side of the road and the Jew came along and he was the hero of the story, oh, fantastic, praise the Lord, you know, a loving, kind Jew. The hero's not a Jew. You know, I thought of another illustration of this. The uh, leader of the Australian Christian lobby is on his way to Jericho and he's attacked by robbers laying half dead at the side of the road. Along comes a Baptist pastor. Passes by on the other side. Next comes along a Pentecostal pastor. Passes by on the other side. And finally, along comes a gay couple. Just having been married in Jerusalem, on their way to their honeymoon in Jericho. And it, it clashes in our minds, doesn't it? But that's what Jesus is wanting to do and he sets up this whole this whole business. Um, but we think of so many reasons not to get involved, not to do what we know that we ought to do. I want to show you this video clip if I've got, a, I've got time. Yeah, I'll, I'll show you this. Um, about why people don't get involved and why they turn into bystanders and passers-by plays like this street in New York City. If you were unfortunate enough to be the victim of a crime or taken ill unexpectedly, you might think that surrounded by all these people, someone would intervene. After all, isn't there safety in numbers? Psychologists say no. Research suggests that often a victim is less likely to receive assistance when surrounded by a group rather than a single bystander. When people are in a crowd, it's easier to pass the buck. It's what psychologists call the diffusion of responsibility. Liverpool Street Station in London, a busy thoroughfare for commuters. Uh, uh, Unknown to these uh, passers-by, 
Peter is an actor. As part of an experiment on bystander apathy, he's pretending to be ill. Help. Help. How long before he gets help? Helping would be inconvenient or even risky. He lies there for more than 20 minutes and no one raises an eyebrow. Please, somebody help me. It's always very distressing to watch situations like this where people are obviously suffering and no one's actually helping them. But what we have here is two conflicting rules. One is the rule we ought to help and the other is the rule that we ought to do what everybody else is doing. And here you have a, a group of, effectively a group of strangers who are exerting the pressure not to intervene, not to help. And it's very difficult to rebel. Ruth, another actor, takes Peter's place. How long before she receives help? Four minutes later, and 34 people have passed without stopping. Well, people don't really want to know that they just haven't got the time. Well, they have got the time, they just don't want to get involved. Unwittingly, these strangers have silently formed a temporary group with a rule, don't get involved. They're afraid to stand out from the crowd and won't take action if no one else does. This woman has clearly spotted Ruth, but she conforms to the rule and does nothing. Watch what happens, though, when someone else helps. You all right? You all right? Yes, thank you. Sure, you look a bit clicky, you know what I mean? She suddenly finds sure. herself in a different group with a new rule to help. Uh, you want to sit up? You, you don't look well, does she? Uh, you all right? Yeah, sure. First I thought she was dead. Then I saw to check to see if she was breathing or not. And I looked around and I couldn't believe that no one had noticed her because there was a bloke sat there just absorbed in reading a newspaper. This time, Peter's dressed as a respectable gentleman. Now that his dress is in keeping with those around him, how long before he's rescued? Hello, sir. How are you today? I'm all right. Six thanks. seconds. She even problem? calls him sir, and suddenly no, everyone's fine. a good Samaritan. Do you suffer from epilepsy? No. Why you're lying on the floor in the rain? Because he's part of the right group. Everyone wants to help. I would just hate to be in his position of feeling ill um, and nobody helping and walking past, so I'd just like to check that he was okay. And I thought, well, it's wet, so he must really be ill because he's going to ruin his suit anyway. <laughs> we can't have him ruining his suit. <laughs> we have all sorts of reasons why when Jesus says to go... And we say, ah, uh, somebody else will do it. We see somebody beside the road. Ah, uh, somebody else will take control. You know, the Anzacs put their hand up and said, I will go. And Christians today, myself included, tend to have this sense of, apathy because we have our well-defined enemies and the story of the good samaritan fought on the jerry uh, on the told about the jericho road where our anzacs were fighting is jesus 
playing out his instructions to us to love our enemies. Greater love has no man than this, it says. That they would lay down one's life for his friends. It's a great Anzac verse, but this is what Jesus does. Because see, in the story, there is the sense where we should be identifying with the wounded man on the side of the road. And who is it that comes to rescue us? Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then he says to us, now you go. What will you be? Will you be an Anzac? Will you be, or will you be a bystander or a passerby? Verse 